open up your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to pick up where we left off uh, as far as in our series, 12 Essential Conversations That Every Parent Needs to Have uh, Just Before Easter. And if you, haven't, uh, if you haven't been with us in this series, I encourage you to go back and you can listen online, catch up kind of where we've been. But essentially, what we've been trying to do was to go back to God's design and some of the foundational doctrines of humanity and what that looks like in, in an effort to basically give God's opinion in light of a, uh, a, a very militant shift away from the things of God as far as in our everyday culture. Uh, and so we, we've, we've mentioned, especially our children, as, as our world continues to kind of drift away from the things of God, and, and not even really so much drift away, run away from the things uh, that honor God, our children are the ones who are being inundated with more views and more secular things that are outside of God's will and God's design. So for us, as God's people, we have to be very intentional about raising up our children with a biblical worldview. One of the quotes that we've said several times during this season uh, has come from Michael Catt, Pastor Michael Catt out of Georgia. He said, whoever wants the next generation the most are the ones that's going to have them. And so as the church, as people of God, if we want to see our children raised with a biblical worldview, it's not going to happen by accident. And so what we've done is we've kind of gone back to Genesis. What we've said is if you've ever lost something, the best place to find it again is to go back where you had it last. And so before sin entered the world, at the very beginning, we find God's design for humanity. Uh, there with Adam and Eve, and so at creation at the beginning. So what we've talked about thus far, our central truths that we've talked about thus far have been, there is one true God, God created all things. God created man in his image. God gave man dominion over the earth. God designed humanity in his image to be expressed as male and female. God loves children and desires humanity to have children. And then God designed humanity to be a people who worked. And so today, I invite you to look with me in Genesis chapter 2. We're going to pick up in verse 15, right where we left off, where God has created the garden. He's placed, just formed man. He's put man into the garden to cultivate it and keep it. So look with me, Genesis chapter 2, verses 15. It says, The Lord God took the man, put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Now we're going to pause there this morning, but the, basically much of our discussion today is going to be centered around the existence of the knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that God's command for man not to eat of it lest he die. Now, as you can imagine, there's a lot going on here in this text. There's tons of theological, doctrinal, and philosophical discussion centered around this passage and the existence of the garden of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden and God commanding him not to eat of it. Now, this is not the first time that we see the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If we go back to Genesis chapter 2 verse 9, we see it again. In verse 9 the scripture says, "Out of the ground the Lord God calls calls to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight of, to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So before we really jump into this, before we jump really what the essential truth we're going to talk about today is, let me tell you a couple of things that we're not going to talk about today. First, we're not going to talk about, dive into really what these two trees 
really mean? Except to say that most scholars believe that the tree of life was something that represents a, a, a picture almost of Christ in the Old Testament. Jesus is the one who gives life, and it was that picture there at the very beginning where man was always perpetually in the presence of God, able to take of the tree of life regularly. And then the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, basically, as far as most scholars believe, that it was a picture that represented man's submission to God's will and his desire. By man not eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil meant that he was living in full submission to God. Now again, there are an abundance of views and opinions about what these trees mean, but for our purposes today, all we really need to know is that they were real, that God put them there, that man had free access to the tree of life, but that God commanded man to stay away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Also, we're not going to get into the discussion today about why God placed something in the garden that man was commanded not to partake of that ultimately would lead to the fall of man when they did partake of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. This was the first sin that ultimately brought humanity into a sinful estate. Now, there's various opinions as to such why God gave man this option to obey or disobey in the Old Testament. Some would say that it's because he desired true obedience from his followers, and so that couldn't have existed without the possibility of obedience or disobedience. Now, there may be some merit to that, but we cannot know that from Scripture. And the case, and ultimately, only God knows. Also, there are those who would try to say that God's decision to give man the possibility of failure by allowing the tree of knowledge of good and evil to be in the garden was essentially God was tempting man or that God was somehow implicit in sin. We've got to know from a biblical worldview to stay faithful to the scriptures. We must interpret all things through the lens of the Bible. And the scripture shows us that God always hates sin. That God tempts no one. And even though he is in control over all things, is that God cannot be blamed for causing evil actions because he is holy. James chapter 1 verse 13 says, Let no one say that he is tempted, saying, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, we see that this is scripture says that this is the message we have from him and announced to you that God is light and in him... There is no darkness at all. And so again, God has no part in these sinful actions here. However, what we can clearly see in this text that is vastly important to us today as far as raising children with a biblical worldview and even for ourselves today as far as having a biblical worldview is that God designed humanity with the ability to make choices based on what is right and wrong in the eyes of God and that those choices have consequences. Here we see in the Garden of Eden that God created us as human beings to live in a world where he gives us boundaries as to what is right and what is wrong and the ability on some level inside of his sovereignty to make choices and decisions. Now once sin entered the world, uh, God's, our need of God giving us more boundaries, more rules, we see that happening later on in Scripture. But right here at the beginning of Scripture, we see even here, before sin entered the world, God gave us the ability to make decisions based on what is right and wrong. And we see that here with the, knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there's really three big things that we need to see in this text. First, we see that God gave humans the ability to make choices and decisions. We also see that human choices 
are either right and wrong in the eyes of God. And we also see that human choices have real consequences in life. Now, theologian John Calvin, who would later say that he did all that he could all that he could do to avoid using the term free will. Often when you talk about man's ability uh, to make decisions, we, we, we hear it stated that God gave man free will. He, he conceded to use the term as he described Adam's actions in the garden to take of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is what he said. This is the origin of free will. That Adam wished to be independent and dared to try what he was able to do. While here Calvin essentially says that man's ability to have free will is a result of our sinful desire that wanted to be independent from God, the reality is that Calvin also affirms that, the, affirms that in the garden, God gave on some level to man the ability to make decisions, to make choices. And we see that in the design of God. So our eighth essential conversation that we need to have with our children is that God has given humanity the ability to choose between right and wrong, and those choices have consequences. And ultimately, is this not what parenting really is anyway? Is that we're constantly training our children to make decisions and choices because that's what we do. We'll talk about it in a moment. But it is impossible to live as a human being and not make choices and decisions. This is just the way we function. It's the way God created us to live. And as far as in parenting, our responsibility is to help our children see what is right and wrong ultimately based on in the eyes of God and that those decisions have consequences. And so if they do something that's outside of what they should, we give them consequences. And this is hard. Is it not discipline, giving boundaries? This is the hardest part of parenting. Sometimes they step out of line and we look at them and we're like, we're so compassionate. You know you, you, you have to discipline, but you don't really want to. Sometimes you're just so exhausted you know you need to step in and give consequences, but it's just hard to do it. And then sometimes the, the hard, as far as in parenting and decisions and consequences, is that it's hard to do it in the right spirit and, and do it in a way that they survive. You know, I mean, let's just be honest with you. There's, um, recently, Isaiah, our three-year-old, uh, Kimberly was not feeling well, and he did something wrong. And, and so she was going to try to give him some grace and honestly didn't, you know, just, just didn't really didn't feel that well. And she, she gave him timeout. Hey, you go over here and you go to timeout. So he goes and sits down for a little bit. A few minutes later, she calls him back, expecting him to be apologetic. And, and she said, are you sorry? And normally, Isaiah, his thing to us, if he tells us he loves him, is that he'll stretch his arms out. He'll say, I love you this much, you know. And she said, are you sorry? And he looked at her dead face, in the, dead in the eyes and said, I'm not, my not sorry. And then he said, my love you this much. <laughs> Suddenly, Kimberly felt better, you know. And, but again, this is parenting. There are right and wrong. They have decisions, they have choices, and those choices have consequences. Now, like we have said in each week in this series, in order for us to be able to help us have these conversations, we need to be able to answer three questions, and I'm going to attempt to do that today. So first, question number one, where do we see man's choices, God's truth, ultimately what is right and wrong based on God, and real consequences in the scriptures? So let me answer those. First, the scriptures affirm that God has given the ability to man to make choices. It's all over the Bible. You, you can't read the Bible and not see that God gives man the ability to make choices. The scripture shows us that we can make choices concerning our morality. 
which is ultimately what is right and wrong in the eyes of God. We see this back to, uh, again, the earliest of settings. In Genesis chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, we see that one of the earliest examples of man's ability to make a decision comes from Cain and Abel. Now, these are the sons of Adam and Eve. Now, again, we see man's ability to have a decision even with Adam and Eve in the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And we'll see in Genesis 3, in a couple of weeks, they messed that choice up. Now, again, we see with Cain and Abel, they too, God has given them, you want to call it free will, the ability, however you want to call that, but they have the ability to make choices. We see that Abel brought offerings to God, and so did Cain, but Abel's offering was better than Cain's. So this is what, and so Cain became jealous. This is what God says to him in Genesis 4, verse 6. It says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and it's desirous for you, but you must master it. Even at the very beginning, he speaks to Cain here. He's, I got, you got two choices. You can either do well and your countenance will be lifted up, or you can do wrong, and sin is crouching at the door. But again, God is giving Cain the choice. He has the ability to make a decision to do what honors God or to sin. So we see this is consistently, we have this in the design of God. We have the ability to choose to do what honors God or what dishonors God. The scriptures also show us that we have the ability to make choices interpersonally. We have, to, we have the, the opportunity to make choices with people. And, and this is a huge part of our lives, the people that we spend time with. The Bible shows that we make choices concerning our friendships. We see God through Solomon in Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20, says to us that he who walks with the wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Again, the idea here, the picture in this scripture is that God is saying to us, take care in the people you choose to spend time with because there are consequences to those choices. We see the same thing. The Bible gives us choices and decisions concerning even our spouses. In Genesis chapter 24, verse 58, we see that it was Rebekah's choice whether or not to marry Isaac to become the wife of Isaac. It says that they called Rebekah and said to her, this is her father, Will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. She had that decision. This is the greatest decision any of us will make. Often, outside of coming to faith in Christ, is who will we marry? And by the way, once, when it comes to marriage, once you've made that decision, your decision has consequences. Meaning, that is God's will for you. Whoever you marry, this is God's will for you. For you, I've heard people say, well, I got married early, and you know what? I, just, I think I miss God's will. Let me say something. You never miss God's will when you get married. When you get married, that is God's will for you. That is covenant. That's always inside his will. Now, does divorce happen? Sometimes it does. Is it unforgivable? Uh, absolutely not. Is it something that, that God can do restoration in your lives and remarriage? and all? Absolutely. But on the front end, we need to recognize the inside of the will of God is that God desires our choices to matter. We also see the scriptures show that we can make choices about our spiritual intimacy. What does that mean? Ultimately, the decisions we make affect how close we are walking with God. In Genesis chapter 15, verses 9 and 10, the open invitation in verse 9 is to abide in my love. Isn't that good? The invitation of Jesus saying to the world, abide in my love. But then in verse 10, he makes this statement. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. The open invitation is that, yes, Jesus has always invited us to come. Come into His love. 
But then the flip side of that is, is if I want to abide in his love, if I want to walk in greater intimacy with God, if I want to walk in nearness with Jesus, then my level of obedience is going to translate to that. My level of obedience is going to dictate that. Let me tell you what this basically says to us today. We have as much of Jesus in our lives as we want to, as we have decided to. And then finally, the scriptures show us that we make choices about our spiritual eternity. Now again, there's a lot of theological discussions around this. And I believe that both sides have a lot of merit here in God's sovereignty and man's ability. But over and over again, you cannot negate the fact that Scripture shows that God has given us the choice to follow Him and that sometimes people choose to or not to. Mark chapter 10, verses 20 and 21, we see the story of the rich young ruler, the man who comes to Jesus and he has the question, How, what, what can I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus points him to a few of the commandments and he uh, says to him, I've kept all of these from my youth up. And then he makes this statement to him in verse 21. He says, one thing you lack, go and sell all that you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Listen, this is probably the saddest verse in scripture. But at these words, he was saddened and he, saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. This man weighed Jesus' call, his truth, his standard, go give it, got to be willing to surrender everything to follow me. And he made a decision that it was not worth it. It was a decision he was grieved over, but either way he made a decision and he walked away because he was sad. He chose not to follow Jesus. Throughout Scripture, all the way back to the beginning, in Genesis 2, we see God giving man the ability to make choices. Now, let me take a time out here for a moment. We do need to understand that, yes, the Bible has given us the ability to make decisions and choices, but in some way that we fully can't understand, God is still sovereignly in control. So all my Reform buddies this morning can say amen, okay? Daniel chapter 4, verse 35 says this, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. You see that? God does what he wants to do. He says, no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? In a way that only God knows, the scriptures show us that inside of God's full control, God has given us the ability to make choices and decisions freely. Now, this will really warp your noodle here for a moment if you really let it go. God gives us the full ability to make decisions and choices inside of God's full control. Now, this can be hard for us to wrap our minds around. And listen, we're talking about the sovereignty of God. It should be hard for us to wrap our mind around. You shouldn't say, well, i got to back off from that. That's the glory and majesty of God that we can't. The, the things of the Lord belong to the things of the Lord. But this is what I would say. In situations in Scripture where we don't fully understand everything, it shouldn't ever cause us to question the parts that we do clearly understand. So in this case, we may not fully understand how God can still be in control, but still give freedom to us to choose and make decisions in our lives, but it still at the same time should not cause us to question the fact that Scripture clearly shows us that God has given us, even at the very beginning, the ability to choose and to make decisions, and those decisions have consequences. Theologian Wayne Grudem spoke about this saying. He said, when we say we have free will, it is important, it is important to be clear as to what is meant by this phrase. Scripture nowhere says that we are free in the sense of we are ever outside of God's control. But 
we are nonetheless free in the greatest sense that any creature of God, creature of God could be free. We make willing choices that have real effects. We are aware of no restraints on our will from God when we make those decisions, and those decisions have real consequences. So again, from Scripture, it is clear from the very beginning that God gave us the ability to make choices and decisions, and those choices matter, and they have consequences. Secondly, the Scriptures affirm that God determines what is right and wrong in the world. The fact that God determines what is right and wrong in the world matters greatly when we consider our ability to make decisions. Here in Genesis chapter 2, God clearly gave Adam and Eve a command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is expressed God's will and his desire since he is God. And once he said that, it is truth. It was right and it was wrong. What was right and wrong was set by God. Now, here's the, here's the reality. I have wills and desires. You have wills and desires here today. But your will and desire does not establish truth for everybody else in the world. It may be true to you in some sense, but it's not, it doesn't express what is right and wrong for me. My will and desire doesn't express what is right and wrong for you. Now, in some ways, our world is, under, is accepting this right now. You hear statements like your truth and my truth. But, but here's the flip side of that. There is one who does set standards for right and wrong, who has his truth that applies to everyone, and that is the one true God. Because he is ultimately the authority over all things, including humanity. The Bible says in Psalms 119, verse 160, speaking of God, it says, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. Parents, as we have this conversation with our children about God giving them the ability to make choices and decisions and that those decisions have consequences, we need to make sure that we point them to the fact that how do they they make right decisions before God? And ultimately, we have to point them to look to the places where they can find God's truth. Not your truth, not my truth, not the world's truth, where they can find God's truth. If God's given us the ability to make choices then ultimately those choices are right and wrong. How do we find what is God's right and wrong? Well, the Bible says that God's given us a few ways. First, we see it in creation. Secondly, we see it in our conscience, the way God has written what is right and wrong in our hearts. We find it through the counsel of others, is what Scripture says. But the most foundational place that we find God's truth is in the canon of Scripture. Mystics can sometimes misrepresent God in creation. Our conscience can be hardened through perpetual sin. And the counsel of others can sometimes lead you astray. But the truth of God's word never fails. 2 Timothy 3.16, the Apostle Paul speaks to his young apprentice in the faith, Timothy, about the, the truth of God's word. This is what he says. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training and righteousness. I, I, I love how Pastor Rick Warren communicated this. He said, God's word as our teacher shows us his path. God's word as our reprover shows us when we get off the path. God's word as our corrector shows us how to get back on the path. And God's word as our trainer shows us how to stay on the path. 
So again, what do the scriptures affirm? That we have choices, and the scriptures also affirm that God's word is the standard for what is right and wrong in our life according to those choices. And then finally, thirdly, the scriptures show us that our choices do have real consequences. All throughout Scripture, we see that not only does God give humanity the ability to make decisions, but also we see that God makes it clear that those decisions have consequences. Here in Genesis 2, God revealed to Adam that it was not his will that he eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But he also made it clear that if he did, that there would be consequences to endure. Look at the last part of verse 17. It says, For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And by the way, That's exactly what happened. The Bible says in Romans that through Adam came death and death spread to all men, speaking of the curse of sin. But it shows us that from the very beginning, God has given consequences to our choices. You know, the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, probably gave one of the greatest passages about how our consequences, our decisions have consequences. It's actually been referred to as the law of the harvest. It says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this will he also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will reap from the flesh corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap from the Spirit eternal life. Essentially, what Paul is saying here is that what you do, whatever you do, whatever you sow to is what you're going to receive. Whatever you, you, Your actions are always going to bring back some sort of consequence. And the Bible shows this to be true. The Bible shows that we have consequences. We see consequences in our world. We also see consequences before God. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, Peter speaks about how the earthly authorities of the world that divvy out judgment, punishment, is something that we should honor. It says for us to submit yourselves to the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether as to a king or to one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. He's saying here that, hey, there are consequences in the world according to your choices and decisions. But we know that even greater than any earthly consequences, that we also see that there are consequences before God. You know, the Bible shows that our decisions have consequences before a holy God. As Christians, we understand that as sinners, we deserve the wrath of God as a consequence for our sin. But praise God that Jesus stood in our place and spared us those consequences by taking them for us. Can I get an amen to that this morning? But listen to this. This is what's important. Even in the beauty of the gospel, though, our sin still had consequences. God didn't look the other way. They were not just left undone, but rather those consequences were poured out upon Jesus. The Bible says in 1 John 2, 2, that he himself is the propitiation for our sins, meaning Jesus took our consequences. I love Adrian Rogers told the story uh, that related to the earthly consequences and even heavenly consequences. He said he was preaching one time in downtown Memphis at the old Bellevue Baptist Church. And a man suddenly came up from the crowd and punched him. I don't know what he's preaching on, but apparently he didn't like it. He said that once the man punched him, that he was arrested and they took him off the stage. He said he finished preaching the sermon, which what a stud, you know, just kept on going. Anyway, when it was over with, uh, he went to the Memphis jail saw the man, asked to see the man. And the man was obviously troubled, and and he was apologizing, and he said, I forgive you. And then he said, and in fact, 
if you'll go to God, he shared the gospel with him. And he said, God can forgive you too. And the guy was so gracious and excited. He said, so does that mean I get to go home? And he said, well, I can forgive you and God can forgive you. But the state of Tennessee, they may have other things to say. And the reality is, is that parents, we must teach our children that the scriptures show us that our decisions have consequences in this life and before God. So as you can see from all over Scripture, as far as our ability to have choices, God is the one who sets the standard for what is right and wrong in our choices, and that ultimately the consequences for their choices, the Bible has a lot to say. The second question, though, this morning that we have to answer is, where do we see God giving humanity the ability to choose between right and wrong and those consequences of those decisions in our world? Again, this is what's so great. When we are pointing people to God's design, God's design always finds its way to rise to the top. In situations where something is built into God's design, we see it in our world, even in secular places. Let me give you a few ways that we see God's design and giving a man the ability to make choices and those choices having consequences. First, we see that God gave, us, gave humanity the ability to make decisions and choices in our world in many ways. First, we see it in the fact that we have to make these decisions every day. I mean, this is just built-in basic humanity 101. You cannot exist in this world without making decisions. You made a decision to come to church today. You made a decision to put on clothes to come to church today. And we all say amen to that. Praise the Lord. You made a decision, the fact that you had breakfast this morning, what you made. You're going to have to make decisions tomorrow about getting up and going to work. I know it's Monday, but you got to go. You know, I mean, like, there, you make decisions every day. This is in the design of God. You cannot exist without being a decision maker. I love what uh, George W. Bush said one time. You want to really have some fun, go watch some George W. Bush clips on leadership. And uh, he was talking about his decision. And one he said, because I am the decider. <laughs> Wait, so sometimes you just got to make a decision, you know. Also, we see God's humanity. We see ultimately the design of God and humanity to make decisions and choices in the fact that in places where people are more free, to make decisions and choices, humanity flourishes, especially when it's under authority. What we see in Genesis 2 is that God gave man the ability to make a choice, to take of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But he also had authority. He told him not to and that there were consequences. Freedom under authority is what we see here in Genesis 2. God gave man the freedom to make choices to rule the garden underneath the authority and the rules set up by God. Now, as we know, our sinful nature can always mess up freedom and can cause consequences, and we'll see that in a few weeks in Genesis 3. However, prior to the fall, this system of freedom of choice under the authority of God seems to be God's best design for us, and it is proven today when we look at the nations of the world that has given people the most freedom underneath a banner of laws and authorities. These are the nations that seem to thrive the best. While no society is perfect in a sinful world, it does seem that there's less hunger, there's less sickness, there's less inequality, there's more justice in the nations that are considered free compared to those who are considered less free. And in fact, one study showed that of the top 10 nations in the world that people attempt to immigrate to, that eight of the 10 of those nations are justified or, or, or referred to by the Heritage Foundations as free or mostly free nations. And the two other ones 
are still considered moderately free. What does it say? The world says to us that we desire freedom. We desire the ability to choose and that that thrives the best in situations where societies are set up in such a case. Now again, can we mess up freedom to choose in our sinful and rebellious state? Absolutely. But God did create us with the ability to make decisions and choices to honor him. And yes, we long for that. And it seems to be where humanity thrives the greatest. Secondly, we see in our world that humanity thrives the best in places where laws are written and enforced. Again, this is an idea of truth. God established what was right and wrong. If there's any area in our world that says amen to God's design for humanity to have the ability to make choices and decisions, we see it in places and we see it inside the law and order in the governmental realms. The Bible shows us that God sets a clear standard in Genesis 2 of what is right and wrong. In most thriving societies of the world, it is clearly defined what is legal and what is illegal in the world, and that is clearly set, and it's set by law. The Bible also shows us in Genesis 2 that when people do not follow God's standard, that they will endure His consequences. Again, in most stable and civilized nations in the world, there is not only law, but there's also consequences for breaking the law. This will be considered law and order. Now again, are there such things as legal systems that are corrupt and unjust? Yes. In a fallen world, laws created by man are not always just. In a fallen world, laws created by men are not always rightly and evenly applied. In a fallen world, consequences for breaking laws are not always distributed equally and fairly. In cases like this, Christian people should absolutely stand for amending these laws and correcting these wrongs because they do happen and we should advocate for justice. However, as we've seen the last few years, places that were once calling to defund the police are now begging for more police. Areas and communities that were so-called taken back by the community and and like the the Chaz community in Seattle where police and authorities were barricaded from entering into. These sites were later found out to be the place where abundance of rape, murder, and anarchy was taking place. Situations like this show us that systems that have flaws and failure, that God's people still, inside of those situations, that we thrive the most when there is law, when there is enforcement of law, because that is part of God's design. I want to say this today. I praise God for our friends in law enforcement today. If you have ever experienced true lawlessness in the world, true injustice in the world, and I have seen it, firsthand, it will make you incredibly thankful for where we live right here today. So it can be clearly seen in our world today that humanity God has given us the desire and the ability to choose and to be this, the, this ability to choose in these settings that they thrive the most as long as right and wrong is being enforced, that there's a standard of right and wrong. Parents, a good thing to teach our children is to look in the world at the places that seem to function closest to God's design and you will see greater flourishing. In places of the world where there's freedom with no law and consequence, it leads to things being frantic. Law and consequences with no freedom leads to frustration. But freedom with law and consequence leads to flourishing because it's inside 
of God's design. Now, church, let me say one more thing. I would have loved to have taken a moment to say, look at God's design in the world by looking at the laws here in our own nation. And in many ways, you can still see that. But I will say this. The further our nation gets away from the standards of God's law, from the standards of truth, just like we said earlier, when there's freedom with no law and consequences, it leads to things being frantic. And that's exactly what we're seeing in our world today. The more we get away from law, the more we get away from the things that honor God, then the more frantic things around us become. And the scriptures already told us this. Proverbs chapter 14 verse 34 says this, Righteousness exalts a nation. But sin is a disgrace to any people. If there's any reason worth coming to pray tonight at 6 o'clock, man, let us come to pray for our nation. And then finally today, our final question is this. Parents, why do we need to teach our children that God has given us the ability to make decisions in our life and that those decisions have consequences? Church family, like we've said in recent weeks, in order to raise our children with a biblical worldview, we've got to know first and foremost, we've got to know the Scriptures. We've got to show them what's right and wrong according to the Scriptures. Then secondly, we've got to be able to, it's good when we can show them where God's design is fleshed out in our world around us. But also, we need to be able to speak to them about the direct attacks that are coming on them today. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, the Apostle Paul spoke about how we are to be a people who speak truth to one another so that we are not swayed by false doctrine. Parents, it is your job to teach your children the truth. It is your responsibility to be the guardians of doctrine in your home. It is your responsibility to be the chief theologian in your home. It's our job as the church to help equip you to do that, but it is your responsibility to do that in the home. And so today, let me give you a few ways, a few reasons that you need to teach your children about how God's given them the ability to make decisions and choices but ultimately how those choices have consequences. First, it is important to teach our children about decisions and consequences to combat heresy. The word heresy essentially means a lie. It means false teaching that rejects the truth about God. When it comes to humanity's God-given ability to make decisions and that those decisions have consequences, there's a lot of heresies that are going on in our world today that we need to teach against in our home. First, we must teach our children about the heresy of fatalism and determinism. In fatalism, it is said that if God is, incomplete, is completely in control, then our decisions don't matter. In determinism, it is said that essentially our decisions, since they are predetermined, they don't matter. Let me say something to you this morning, church family. Both of these are wrong inside of Scripture because over and over and over again we see God giving His people decisions, the ability to make decisions, and those decisions matter. How many of you have been reading through the one-year Bible recently? I praise the Lord for that. We're in Joshua now. How about when we were just wrapping up in Deuteronomy? Moses is about to pass away. He's giving his last sermon. And in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 and 16 there, we see he lays before the people and he says, This day I have set before you life and death, blessings and the curse. Choose life. Why was he saying that? Because their choices and their decisions matters. We have to let our children know that, that their decisions matter. Also, we must teach our children about the heresy of universalism and secularism. In these thoughts, the freedom to choose is celebrated. 
But the choices we make are virtually never, are never decisions that are based on right and wrong because in these thought processes, either there is no God, so there is no ultimate truth, or there is a God, and he's just a God that's good with whatever. So again, we have to teach our children that their decisions matter, but their decisions matter to a God who does have a standard. Again, there is no such thing as your truth and my truth. There is no such thing as what is good for you and what is not good for me. The Bible makes it clear that there is such thing as a standard of truth because there is a God and God does care. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, Inasmuch as it is appointed unto man once to die, then after this, the judgment. Church family, we have to make it clear with our children that one day every person on this earth will stand before a holy and righteous judge. And then also we must teach our children about the heresies in things like critical race theory. Now again, I'm not just jumping on the bandwagon here for the sake of jumping on the bandwagon. But there is some things in this theory that we need to address. The essential nature of critical race theory states that it claims to examine the intersection of law, society, and race with the assertion that there are many injustices that exist towards minorities in our nation that could be seen as different forms of racism. Now let me say this on the front end. Are there places in our nation where systematic racism may take place? I will say that I believe that it's very possible And in these cases, we as Christians should always advocate for reform and justice. However, in this model, one of the assertions is that that minority people are incarcerated at higher rates, in essence, because the deck is stacked against them. Now, let me say this again, church family. If there are places and people in society that are systematically put into situations that make them more likely towards crime, then we as God's people should grieve that. We should intervene to help and educate, to serve, because we don't desire that for anyone. However, regardless of what may have caused a person to commit a crime, if they have committed a crime, they should pay the penalty for that crime, and their race should not be considered. Nowhere in Scripture is sin ever lessened or explained away by someone's circumstances. In the eyes of God, all sin is sin. And the Bible says in Psalms 9 verse 8 that he judges all with equity. Essentially the idea of the judge who judges all things regardless of what's going on is that we get that from Scripture. God is a God who judges all things equally. Now let me say this too. Equality in judgment and consequence should be true not only in the situations where people have the deck stacked against them, but it should also be true in the situations where the deck is stacked in your favor. I want to say this to you this morning, parents. Just because you have money or just because you have influence, that should not intervene in situations when your kids get in trouble. If your kids get in trouble, the best thing we should do is let them advocate for the fact that they suffer the consequences for sin because this is what teaches them and educates them on how God works and the rest of the world works. Romans chapter 2 verse 11 says, For there is no partiality with God. Can I get an amen that to that this morning? Finally, it's important for us to teach our children about decisions and consequences to teach them responsibility. The entire basis around decisions and consequences comes back to responsibility. And it is inside of God's design 
that we have a higher standard of responsibility because we're creating his image. Lions don't answer to God for their decisions. Bees don't suffer God's consequences because of the things that they do today. Why? Because they're not creating the image of God. We have been given a greater responsibility because we are created in the image of God. So how do we teach our children today about responsibility in their decisions? Let me give you just three quick things and we're going to be done. First, we got to teach them to respect authority, those who set the standards for right and wrong. Parents, when it comes to teachers, when it comes to government, when it comes to others and adults, we should teach our children that unless they are being asked to sin, they should always obey. When we hear the stories way too many times today of the helicopter mamas and daddies who every teacher is wrong, every coach is wrong, everybody around this person that gives their child any kind of hard time is wrong. Let me say this to you here today. If you set them up that way, that they are always right, and nobody else is around them is in authority, nobody else can ever speak into their life, then you're raising entitled children who will not be able to function well in the eyes of the world. And one day, they're never going to be able to look at God and say, well, God, I don't like the way you treated me. Also, we must teach our children that our decisions have consequences in the home. If, if we don't set clear standards in the home and enforce those standards in the home, then we can't ever expect them to live that way in society and honor God. And then lastly, we must teach our children that our decisions matter before God. I'm going to ask Brother Ron to make his way back up. I'm fading fast. <laughs> you know, a passage that... Uh, a phrase that we don't use a lot today is the fear of the Lord. But the Bible over and over again shows it is a good and right thing. Acts 9.31 is a passage that I pray for us here at Enon Baptist Church. And the church throughout Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, they enjoyed peace. They were built up. They went on in the comfort of, in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And they increased. One of the best things that we can teach our children as far as reverence in their decisions is to know that their decisions matter to God. We raise our children with an aspect of reality that God sees them and God has an opinion on what they do. This morning, one of the greatest ways that we can do that as parents or as young people in this room is that we live that way. We live knowing that our choices and our decisions matter before holy God. I've been praying kind of all week, Lord, how do you want me to wrap this service up today? And I felt like the Lord gave it to me this morning, just as I was walking over. And this was, I felt like the Lord laid on my heart to say, if we believe that God's given us the ability to make decisions, and that those decisions have real consequences in this life, but also before God, then here's the question. What decision do you need to make today in your walk with God? First and foremost, do you need to make a decision to follow Jesus? Maybe you're, you do the opposite of what the rich young ruler did. Is that Jesus is asking you to surrender everything in your life to follow him. And maybe today you're saying, okay, finally I'm ready. I'm going to give up everything. And Jesus, I'm following you all in. I'm giving my life to serve you. Maybe today you've given your life to Christ, but you've never gone all in and made it public through baptism. 
You've given your life to Christ in recent weeks or months, but you've never gone all in. Let me tell you something here today. Again, decisions have choices, have consequences. Maybe you follow through in baptism, man, and that's the beginning of revival in your heart and life, man. Maybe God starts a new and fresh work in your life. It's the first step of obedience. Maybe today you make the decision to become a member here at the church or to go get in a life group because you know that, hey, I'm only growing so far in my relationship with God. I can give you a thousand different decisions, but this is what I would say to you here today. What choice, what is God laying before you today that you need to do for him? And maybe you can just pray, oh God, is there any decision I need to make for you today? Maybe it's to repent of sin. Maybe it's to go to somebody and say, I'm sorry for the way I acted, I responded in Jesus' name. Hey, listen, there's a thousand things that God could put in your heart and life. And I'll say this today. Any of those decisions have consequences. As Moses said, I said before you this day, life or death, blessings or cursings. Maybe today you make the decision that says, God, I'm going to do what honors you. And I promise you there's life on the other side. It'll be life for your soul. Would you stand with me this morning? As we prepare to sing, would you pray and say, God, what decisions do I need to make for you? If you need to give your life to Jesus right now, in these next few moments, just bow your head and call out and say, Jesus, save me. Man, that's all you got to do right there where you are. Call out to him and say, Jesus, I give my life to you. Our pastors will be up front if you need somebody to pray for you. If you need to join this church, you feel free to come. Brother Michael, would you lead us? And let's respond to the Lord this morning.